This is the Political Monitor Podcast, brought to you by the Concord Monitor. My name's Clay Wirestone. In today's episode, we talk about the resolution of the state budget standoff and the future of Governor Maggie Hassan. And we break down this week's Republican presidential primary debate. <laughs> so that, that, that is the voice of political reporter Allie Morris who is joining us now on the podcast for the first time. It's true. Hi, Allie. Hi. <laughs> and, of course, Casey McDermott, our other political reporter, is also here. Hi, Casey. Hello. So, Allie has had her hands full this week uh, reporting on the doings at the State House, the final passage of a compromise state budget, and all of the uh, subsequent intrigue that that entails. So, Allie, kind of take us through this a little bit. How did the, you know, kind of how did the week start? I mean, did, did people actually anticipate that there would be a deal this week? Sure. So, as you know, Governor Hassan vetoed this back in June. It's been about three months. And so lawmakers were always planning to meet on Wednesday for a so-called veto override day, which is when they consider all of the other vetoes that Governor Hassan made. There was a voter residency requirement, the so-called constitutional carry. It would allow people mm-hmm. to carry guns without a license requirement. Um, and so some people saw this day when they would consider her veto override of the budget as a time when they needed to come up with some sort of compromise. Because if they actually upheld her veto, they would have to go back to the drawing board and come up with a new budget and reopen it. And everyone sort of saw the writing on the wall that that would be a disaster. And so, you know, there have been rumblings that everybody wanted a deal. And I think it was just the pressure. It came down to, you know, getting everyone in a room and they hammered something out that they released the day before. Um, mm-hmm. Well, and and we heard about it here at the Monitor, actually, almost first. or yes. Not first, but... <laughs> well, we did, yeah. So... We talked with um, Senate Majority Leader Jeb Bradley and Speaker of the House Sean Jasper. Um, so they worked out a deal. It's not hugely different from the budget that everyone passed back in June. It had kind of two major things. One is a pay raise for state employees mm-hmm. that um, the House stripped from the budget and the Senate writers essentially said they forgot about and never put it in. Um right. And they had actually offered to pay for that about a month ago. So it wasn't a big surprise that that was in the compromise. Then the big deal item was that the business taxes will still go into effect. Business tax cuts, right? Business tax cuts, yep. Um, That's one big reason why Governor Hassan said she vetoed the budget. She was nervous that, you know, continual cuts in the business tax cuts would lower future revenue and make it hard to pay for things going forward. Mm -hmm. So the, the deal says that those will go into effect, but... Um, you know, the first round of cuts will start taking effect in 2016. And if the state doesn't meet a specific revenue goal by the end of 2017, then the second cut won't go into effect. Right. So triggers, in other words. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And if I'm, I seem to recall that a couple of years ago, there was a similar mechanism put in place for the cigarette tax, right? There was a cigarette tax cut in the O'Brien legislature that had something something along those lines with it too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and they actually missed their targets with that one, so the taxes went 
went back up. Yeah, they've done they've done these types of sunset proposals before. It seems to be a pretty popular way to get things through. Right. So um, so we hear about we heard about it at the monitor Tuesday morning. Yes. And then they actually make the announcement on Tuesday afternoon. Yep, they make the announcement Tuesday afternoon. And there was immediately some concern about whether the House could get this deal through. So, you know, as we know, this whole year, there's been this uh, rift between Republicans in the House. It started basically when um, Representative Bill O'Brien was running for Speaker. And, you know, Democrats were nervous about having him again. And so they actually backed um, a different Republican, Sean Jasper, who eventually defeated O'Brien after several rounds of voting. Right. The whole point here being that the Speaker of the House is actually elected by the whole House. So if the minority party joins with even a fraction of the majority party, they can swing the swing the vote. Exactly. Basically. Yeah. And so there's still been some ill will here. And so there was concern. There were emails going around that, um, you know, Representative O'Brien and some other Republicans who he works with were urging members not to vote for this compromise. Um, mm -hmm. And then that sort of led into Wednesday. Uh, when the agreement had to go through sort of a legislative ping pong back and forth between the Senate and the House. And while in the Senate, everything cleared with all 24 votes. Mm -hmm. When it got to the House, it turned into a bit of a disaster. Now, now, now we use the word disaster. So, so how would how would we describe it? There weren't people like screaming and being set on fire or anything. I would I would hope. Um, no, but it did get very tense at times. So the real fight wasn't actually about the budget bill. It was about suspending the rules, which um, is a procedural measure that they need to do. So basically, the way this whole thing worked out is that they decided they would override Governor Hassan's budget veto and also tack on the budget agreement that they reached. But right. since, you know, trust isn't always there, they decided that they would pass the compromise first. And once she had signed that, they would override the budget. Right. And so in order to do that, you have to get a two-thirds majority to suspend the rules. And um, so that was, was the problem in the House. And so for quite some time, there were challenges, um, Representative O'Brien and some others challenged the constitutionality of the actual um, compromise agreement. Then once the rules were suspended, they tried to tack on several other bills that had been vetoed. Like and, that had, and that were not able to be over, overridden. Exactly, right. yes. So like the um, voter residency requirement. And this ultimately just led to several hours of drawn out um, <laughs> Fighting and at one point, actually, Speaker Jasper left um, left the speaker's chair to come down and speak on the floor in favor of the deal, which is quite um, quite unusual. Mm -hmm. And um, and you were in the in the middle of this all and, and live tweeting throughout. Yes, <laughs> yes, we were. Um, but you know, getting to it's, I mean, but the real question, of course, is that two thirds mm -hmm. number because getting two thirds of folks, uh, you know, basically anyone in the house to agree on anything, can be a challenge. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I mean, but ultimately they they scrounge the votes together. Yeah, I think um, you know I, I didn't get the sense from a lot of people that that everyone's really excited about the budget they're passing. I think most of them were excited to be able to move on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this has been going on for several months now, and, um, you know, there's some big fights coming up too. Medicaid expansion comes to mind as the next one. And so I think people were sort of eager to get something passed, 
um, you know, that they all think is a compromise. Some people said it doesn't have everything they want, but it has some of the things they want, and now they can move on to other well, and, matters. And it was already being used kind of as a political weapon against the governor, too. Exactly. Um, the whole notion that there was some expanded, you know, mental health and substance abuse treatment money in the budget, and because they were working on a continuing resolution, you know, agencies and nonprofits weren't getting that money, mm-hmm. and so the the question was, you know, well, why are you, you know, why are you depriving these people of their their needed funds, Maggie right. Hassan? Yes. So, yes. Um, I think that was part of the pressure that led to a deal, and while the CR, I think, was certainly burdensome for some organizations. I think there's an understanding that had it gone on longer and they hadn't have come up with a deal, it would have really started getting painful for, for organizations. Right. Because there's no there's no guarantee that, you know, if, if, if either side had just really decided to dig in their heels, this could have gone on indefinitely. Yes, that's correct. Basically. Um, so, I mean, this really then takes us on to kind of the next question, and people almost immediately began talking about this, which is the political future of Governor Hassan. Right. Um, is she going to, to to run for Senate? So what was the buzz? I mean, did people actually, once the budget passed, did people just start talking about it then? I mean, I think even before the budget passed, people have been talking about it. It's I think it's on everyone's minds because Hassan is sort of at the top of this political domino chain. I mean, everyone on both sides, Republicans and Democrats, are sort of waiting with bated breath to see what she will do before everything else can fall into place. So, for example, if she runs for Senate, that opens the governor's race, you know, wide open. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've already heard, Kristen Nunu has already gotten in. We saw that Stephanie Shaheen said she might consider a run if Hassan runs for Senate. So there's there's quite a long list of Democrats and Republicans who would consider a run. Um, for, for governor. For governor, right. And now if Hassan decides to stay in her governor's chair... Uh, things become a lot more sparse. I don't think there's many Democrats who are seriously looking at the Senate race. Um, So that could be a problem for Democrats. Um, Casey, how's, I mean, how's this been all been factoring into like things that you've been hearing in terms of that? That kind of race and that kind of dynamic yeah, with, I mean, with I Hassan's future. One of the things that I find interesting actually doesn't concern Hassan, but concerns some of the alternatives. And in the presidential race, it's been, you know, kind of a year of dynasties. And if you look at the possibility that Stephanie Shaheen would run for governor, I think it is really interesting that we could potentially have a matchup between um, two uh children of former New Hampshire governors. Um, And, you know, it's a long way away and everything has to be finalized and there's not any, you know, decisions made on that. But I just found that kind of interesting there. Well, it's certainly a New Hampshire tradition with people like, you know, Judd Gregg Mm -hmm. and, you know, I mean, just kind of across the board of kind of the New Hampshire, the New Hampshire dynasty effect. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also a little subplot here involving U.S. Representative Annie Custer. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, where she, where she was was um, basically seemed to be suggesting that she was, she really wanted um, the governor to run for senate. Yes, yep. She said she said that she would like her to run for senate, and also she added that if she does, and Executive Counselor uh, Colin Van Ostern were to run for governor, she would back him. So there's quite a lot, you know. Even though Hassan hasn't said anything, there's quite a lot of jockeying already taking place among among people who are 
weighing runs for governor without knowing whether the seat will be open. I think it's also been interesting in the days since the budget has been, um, you know, has been resolved. And uh, Hassan has also come out with her endorsement of Hillary Clinton, um, which I don't think was necessarily a surprise to anyone, given that um, she backed her um, when she was the Senate Majority Leader and when Clinton was running in 2008. But um, she Clinton for an event this morning, and I was watching part of it. Uh, you know, Clinton was going out of her way to talk about what an effective leader Hassan was and, you know, how great she was. So I think that, you know, the potential to uh, get some buzz from Clinton's candidacy, um, I would think is, you know, is not lost on Hassan's camp, regardless of where she goes in the future. Mm -hmm. So uh, to kind of wrap this up, you know, we have to let, you know, we'll just take the take the temperature of the room here mm -hmm. on uh, on Hassan's Hassan's plans. Um, you know, I remember if it was a few months ago, basically everyone thought that Hassan was going to run for Senate. Then it kind of the 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 chatter shifted a little bit. There were some doubts that she would she would take the plunge. And now it seems to kind of be revving up again. So. Um, so Casey, do you think Hassan is going to run? Give us a percentage. Uh, I, I don't like these things. I am, I think yes. And partially for the reason that I just mentioned that, um, there's no one else basically. Well, but there's, there's, yeah. Um, I mean, there are other people. Um, but I think that also she would perhaps stand to benefit if, Hillary Clinton were to win the party's nomination, um, talking to some other uh, political scientists, political analysts in New Hampshire, they um, said that, you know, Hassan potentially could benefit from whatever wave or bump Clinton may or may not bring in in the general election mm -hmm. against Kelly Ayotte. Sure. And Allie, your thoughts? Does she run? Does she not run? Oh, it's a tough one. I think... Um, I think it's looking like she will just because the it as Casey, you know, as we've been talking about, it's a little bit sparse on the top end and it seems like a lot of people are willing to jump in on the governor's level. Um, and I agree. I think, you know, obviously Governor Hassan has the most name recognition out of all the people who we've been mentioning. Um, you know, it's likely that with the presidential primary, there'll be a lot of money here. She's She's been good at raising money in the past. So I, I don't think, you know, even though the budget kind of dragged on for a little while, I don't think that would necessarily put the kibosh on, on getting a campaign going. It definitely is a big risk for her, though, because it's not likely to be, um, I mean, it's likely to be a competitive race regardless. Well, and, the, and that's, that's one of the other things that's probably bringing the pressure on to Maggie Hassan at this point. I mean, there's only so many competitive Senate races. I mean, and this is pretty much always the case. There's always only about a half dozen or so across the country. Yeah. This is one of the, the big opportunities uh, that Democrats see for a pickup of a, of a seat in the U.S. Senate. Those are pretty precious at this point. So, you know, if you're a viable candidate, they're interested. Yeah, the pressure is definitely there. But, uh, well, thanks, Allie, by the way. I, I really, I also enjoyed the use of the word kibosh. <laughs> Thank you. So, <laughs> I try. <laughs>
So we are now joined by our politics editor, Jonathan Van Fleet. Hi, John. Hi, Clay. Uh, Allie Morris has departed, but Casey is still here. I'm I'm sad. I wanted to I wanted to have fun with Allie on the uh, the podcast. Today. Well, we uh, we all did, but apparently we only got her for for one segment. So, but I did. Be, I was able to catch her Snapchat gifs where she had rainbows coming out of her mouth <laughs> and laser beams coming out of her eyes. They're well, technically not gifs. What well, what are GIFs? they? What are they? No, telling? they're just videos that you can send to. There's like new filters on Snapchat where you can take a selfie, and then if you move your face in such a way, it will animate these, right. you know, animations on the screen, and you can send them to friends. Valuable information. Yes, this for, is highly for, relevant to the politics for all of, of us. Yes, I thought you were getting geeky on me no. on, on GIF versus GIF pronunciation. No. Nice. Um, so to the point, perhaps. Uh, we had 11 uh, GOP candidates uh, on stage at the Reagan Library in, um, on Wednesday night for the big event, the big debate. There was a smaller debate with another four earlier. Um, and so it was the second major GOP debate, um, and it was pretty much marked by a couple of points, one being the emergence of Carly Fiorina as a real really distinctive voice uh, in that group. And second, kind of the, the fading of Donald Trump a little bit as someone who was, he was very verbal at the beginning and then kind of as the discussion turned to more specific policy proposals and points, he, he kind of had less and, and less to say. So John, uh, looking at that, looking at that debate, looking at the, the aftermath, kind of what comes to your mind? Well, I, I thought uh, just the way it started out was really interesting. Rather than respond to criticisms about whether he should have the nuclear codes as president of the United States, Trump decided to uh, attack Rand Paul for having less than 1% saying, I don't even know why he belongs in this stage. And so w what a way to start. Um, I, for one, don't think uh, Trump's lack of specificity or him waffling on the issues i don't think it's really going to hurt him i don't think i don't think he's playing to the political elite he's he's playing to the people who are tired of politics as usual so they're willing to give him some latitude they're willing to forego some of the, the specifics and i think he's unhurt by his performance in the debate but it undoubtedly the emergence of carly fiorina on that stage with all of the other candidates, was a very, very strong performance. Well, and for a party that has has had its its issues in the past few years in terms of connecting with uh, female voters and kind of talking about women's issues in a, in kind of a in any sort of approachable way, um, you know, Carly Fearing is a great asset uh, on on that front. Um, Although it's important to note that when she was asked towards the end of the debate, you know, every the candidates had a question of, you know, what woman would you put on the, the $10 bill uh, now that the Treasury is considering doing so, you know, Fiorina was the only person basically to give no name. She said, you know, she thought that it was just kind of a token gesture. Yeah, she, um, she said it. I don't think it helps change our history and, you know, we should recognize that women are not a special interest group, which is something that she's been repeating as a chorus throughout her campaign. Um, I did think it was interesting just to see kind of the uh, 
the selections that some of the other candidates made. Um, and I know that some of them have taken some, some flack for this in the days since, but um, a few of them named, you know, their wives, their mothers, their daughters. Um, Jeb Bush initially named Margaret Thatcher. And then I was reading reports that the day after he said, oh, well, you know, that might not have been the best choice. You know, we should open it up to um, let people pick. Um, and just for a little bit of a New Hampshire connection here, Senator Jean Shaheen was none too pleased with the names that she heard thrown around on the debate stage. Mother Teresa as well. Mother Teresa was, one was of also ones mentioned. Um, a few of them did say Rosa Parks. Um, I believe Rand Paul said Susan, Susan B. Anthony. B. Anthony. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott Walker said Clara Barton. Um, so there were some, you know, historical figures that were neither, you know, related personally to the candidates nor not residents of the United States um, who were suggested, but uh, Shaheen did say that she thought that it was um, disappointing, you know, the the names that were offered. And that's relevant because she was the senator who kind of took up the cause to get a woman on, you know, a piece of major currency. So mm-hmm. I thought that when I heard Fiorina suggested putting a, a woman on the ten dollar mm-hmm. bill was a, was kind of a gimmick. Mm-hmm. I thought of Shaheen yeah. because she's the one who's who's championed yeah. this thing, and and her proposal was originally to put a woman on the twenty dollar mm-hmm. bill. Something that I think Scott Walker said was um, that he that it was Ted Cruz actually she, said that he would leave Hamilton on the ten dollar bill. Okay, there you go, and take Andrew Jackson off of the twenty. But nonetheless, so Shaheen had originally proposed putting a woman on the 20, and it was changed to the 10. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, it, 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 it's interesting. I mean, it, it, I think that when you have a Republican debate like that, you really get a notion that the real dis- deciding factors of, like, the GOP primary race are really not um, what the candidates necessarily talk about in New Hampshire. Um, you know, there was there was a huge, I mean, there was some very strong language used about Planned Parenthood, mm-hmm. about defunding Planned Parenthood, which of course is, is broadly speaking, a, 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 I mean, actually funding Planned Parenthood is broadly speaking pretty popular in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. um, even though the Executive Council did do that. Um, you know, and, and, and kind of what you're, you're saying about the, even the $10 bill being Shaheen's idea, you know, a New Hampshire senator. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not like they're they're not necessarily playing to kind of this New England audience at, at a debate like yeah, that. Yeah, well, to a broader I think, crowd. I think there's a few reasons for that. Um, the first is that you know New Hampshire voters are, um, you know, are not necessarily reflective in their political leanings or in their demographic makeup of the rest of the nation. Um, tend to be a little bit more moderate as Republicans, as we've previously discussed, um, and less you know, kind of uh, socially conservative. Um, And I will say that, you know, I don't think that Planned Parenthood and the issue of abortion or, you know, abortion access um, has been completely left off of the campaign trail here. You hear Jeb Bush um, making a point to say that he wants to promote a culture of life um, and other candidates kind of, you know, subtly or not so subtly alluding to their um, pro-life, anti-abortion views on the campaign trail, but it's less a focal point than I mm-hmm. think it might be elsewhere. Um, another thing that I think is worth pointing out is that the moderators play a big role in determining what's talked about on the debate stage. And I found 
that I was kind of disappointed in the style of questioning that was used because I felt like a lot of times it was almost like, you know, kind of like a, I was reminded of the scene from Mean Girls where the main characters do this thing where they have one that's like on a three-way call and she stays quiet while the, another girl says like, oh, did you hear what, you know, asks someone to basically say something about this other person while they're listening in. And a lot of the questions were essentially, this person said this thing about you, respond. Or this person said this thing about your brother. Or, you know, this thing that could be applied to your wife. And I felt like it was almost kind of a juvenile way of getting the candidates to engage and led to more, um, kind of to more clashing without a lot of like substance being on display. And I don't think there was like, you know, policy was discussed, but I think that the questions could have been framed differently to elicit more, you know, substance instead of just kind of bickering. Well, and I think the other the other point to make about the debate was just that there was so much of it. Mm-hmm. There was more than three hours of debate, and and it's probably worth asking whenever any pundits make uh, make a, a lot of you know make a lot of you know to do about any debate that. When you have an event like that that's more than three hours long, you know, the number of people who actually stay with that through like maybe past the 90 minute mark, let's say, are probably pretty small. So, yeah, I haven't looked at the viewership numbers for like over time. I do know that the event, I think, was the most watched in CNN history, but I don't know what the like kind of taper off. I, I can't is. imagine that the ratings in hour three were anywhere near the ratings of yeah. hour one. It's just my. Um, this is interesting. NPR actually did a tally of who spoke the most and the least at the debate. And uh, at number one, it's kind of no surprise, was Trump at uh, nearly 19 minutes. Bush was right behind with uh, nearly 16 minutes. Fiorina had 13 and a half minutes. Um, you know, Carson had nearly 13 minutes. And then way at the end, kind of further evidence of the implosion of, of his campaign, in a way, was uh, Scott Walker with only eight and a half minutes. Uh, there has been some backlash among both sure. Scott Walker backers and just kind of the general like Republican um, crowd um, in saying that they felt like Walker got kind of shortchanged by the format. Um, right, just so. because he hasn't been one to mix, be mixing it up with mm-hmm. the other candidates. So you can't really say, well, Scott Walker said this about you or you said this about Scott Walker. Not- on the other hand, John Kasich has has followed a similar path where he's not attacking other Republicans, mm-hmm. but he was able to interject mm-hmm. himself several times. Mm-hmm. I also found it interesting that whenever uh, a question was asked, like, well, Ben Carson said this about you, you notice that Ben Carson quickly clarified his statements mm-hmm. so several times, said, well, that's not really what I said, and then uh, kind of gave a more a more reasoned and softer interpretation of the original quote. Um, I thought that was effective. But going forward, you know, I think one thing that we really saw, and there was the, oh, so much was made about uh, the question about Fiorina's face and Trump's response. Mo- more than anything, I think Fiorina is like Trump's kryptonite. She can attack him in pretty much any way she feels, and he has. 
he doesn't really have the ability to come back at her like he would any of the other candidates. Because if he does, he gets back into being called a sexist and a woman hater. And that's, that will, if, if that fight escalates, he will lose every single time. Right. Well, because he's also, you know, he'd, he'd had a, his previous battle with Megyn Kelly of Fox News. And the, the issue there, of course, is that Megyn Kelly is a journalist. Mm-hmm. So even if, you know, voters might be predisposed to like her because she's working for Fox, she's still ultimately a member you know, of the media, a member of the press or the media. Whereas, people hate members of the media almost as much as they hate politicians. Right. Whereas, you know, Carly Fiorina is actually a candidate who is out there on the stump, you know, with a with a fairly, you know, red meat kind of conservative message, mm-hmm. too. And I think, too, um, you know, Carly Fiorina, this really played into, I think, one of her strengths, which is the potential to offer up a true, you know, conservative female voice in this election and to offer up a view of a woman who has faced sexism and has faced, you know, obstacles in the workplace and society, um, but articulates those, you know, her, her stance from a different viewpoint than, you know, the other major female competitor in the race, which is Hillary Clinton. So I think that there were many a women, and it seems like, you know, judging from what I read and judging from what I've heard, regardless of their political affiliation, who watched Carly Fiorina over the last week and said, you know, I can identify with what she's going through. And, you know, if I don't agree with her, I respect the way that she handled this exchange. So I think that that scores her political points. Mm-hmm. John, any other any other thoughts about the debate? Well, I, I yes, I think, you know, it was interesting that it was at the Reagan Library and, and they all tried to uh, be Reagan-esque and they all tried to uh, present themselves as, you know, either uh, supporters of Reagan, learning from Reagan, friends of Reagan. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that I think is Trump's appeal to the average Joe, blue-collar America is that he does, he's the one that makes them feel really good about themselves. I'm going to make great America great again. I'm going to make you all rich. And I think that does have a Reagan-esque quality to it, which is why people are willing to give him slack on, you know, the lack of specifics. Because everyone else has got the specifics. They like hearing that. However, there will come a time where people get tired of, I'll get back to you on that. Or uh, we're working on a policy on that. And so maybe we are seeing the, the sunset of, of Trump's uh, campaign here. But, you know, it doesn't well, – I, I know several people who are, who are big-time Trump fans, and they are willing to give him lots and lots of slack. And then, of course, last night he was, uh, he was in Rochester, and he was asked about uh, when are we going to get rid of all the Muslims. And you know the president's a Muslim, and he didn't immediately— He, he didn't... nodded along and said right yes. during the exchange. The full video is online, and I would recommend watching it because there has, you know, in the less than 24 hours since this has occurred, it has been, um, you know, ballooned into a big news story, but also has been now spun and spun and spun by the Trump campaign in terms of what he was actually responding to. But They said he didn't hear the full question and all that. Um, well, they said that he was responding to the man got up and was, you know, pretty gruff in his kind of demeanor in, in speaking um, and said, you know, we've got a problem in this country. 
they're called Muslims, our president is one. And then at that point, that was when Donald Trump kind of nodded and said, right. And then the man went on to ask, you know, what are we going to, you know, we've got these training camps that are all over the place. What are we going to do? Got to get rid of them. And then, you know, Trump said something to the effect of, you know, we'll address that. We're going to take care of it. Um, And there were a lot of people who saw that exchange and were a upset at Donald Trump not pushing back against the uh, assertion that Obama is a Muslim, um, despite the fact that he has repeatedly affirmed his Christian faith and his, you know, that Donald Trump was one of the original birthers. So I don't think that's necessarily a surprise. Um, but they were also upset at. Um, the notion that Donald Trump somehow implied that he was on board with the idea of, you know, getting rid of Muslims in the country um, and didn't, you know, do more to kind of clarify the distinction between the question and, and his response there. Well, and I think that's, I mean, there's been a whole trend of commentary about the Trump campaign, and, and I know we've probably talked about this a little too much already, but um, just the fact that you know, a lot of people seem to be attracted to his campaign for because of kind of some of these undertones, these undercurrents, these kind of dog whistles to um, to to um, you know basically you know white Christian America kind of at the exclusion of other of people who might be other colors or faiths mm-hmm. and. You know, that's certainly nothing that he's ever said exactly explicitly, but, you know, as you kind of perhaps see in an incident like this, you know, it he can come close mm-hmm. at times and he can suggest it and it and it's it's that's a that's a mm-hmm. that's a tough that's a tough thing. I do think it was um and there were a few news outlets that were quick to make this comparison. It just stands in such stark contrast to what you've seen even with some other Republican candidates on the campaign trail, um, a lot of people were quick to point to John McCain, who we all know Donald Trump is no fan of. But when he was asked, I think, at a rally in Minnesota during the 2008 presidential campaign, um, he got some questions from some voters there who were questioning um, then-Senator Obama's uh, nationality, his faith, you know, invoking fear because of Um, you know, associated with the Muslim religion. Um, And John McCain was very quick to push back on those and say, you know, I I disagree with him, but I am not, you know, here to call into question, you know, his, um, you know, to question basically his motives or to think that he has some kind of ulterior plan for his presidency. So I think that Um, just having that as a backdrop for how other presidential candidates have handled the question really made this one stand out all the more starkly. But on the other hand, Trump's getting criticized because he didn't address the question. He never addresses the question. He says, we're looking into that. You (laughs) know, all that. We've heard that. We're looking into that. You know, that's his stock answer. Yeah, I think it's more. And I I mean, I, I think it's also worth noting that this comes in the same week that There was that case in Texas where a young Muslim student was, um, you know, faced pretty harsh disciplinary proceedings for bringing a clock to school because his school officials thought it was a bomb. So I think that a lot of people were disappointed that this was a, um, you know, an instance in which fear of the Muslim religion or of people who practice it went unchecked or unaddressed. 
Yeah. And um, and speaking of, of folks who were in New Hampshire yesterday, along with Trump, uh, we had Hillary Clinton here. Uh, and she's actually still here. Mm-hmm. And Casey, you were kind of following following along with that. So kind of what was the what's the basic um, what's the basic schedule, the basic. Yeah, so she was back to talk about a few things um, related to some policy planks that she's put out in the last few weeks, um, one of which was her plan to address substance abuse, which I think we've talked about previously. Um, And so she had a few conversations on that yesterday, one of which I went to in Laconia, and it was very emotional. Um, There were a few people who stood up in the audience there was one woman who stood up and said that she lost her 23-year-old son 17 months ago to a drug overdose. And then immediately thereafter, another woman stood up and said that she lost her 26-year-old son almost two years ago to suicide and pointed out, you know, the kind of um, links between mental health and substance misuse and the need to uh, erase shame as it relates to mental health issues. And so it was a very kind of raw conversation. Um, and then from there, Clinton went to a town hall later on in Concord. And in both cases, I was kind of struck by the contrast between the Clinton that I saw yesterday and the Clinton that I saw in some of her first visits to the state. Um, it's very clear that she is you know, slowly but surely settling into being much more comfortable and much more candid on the campaign trail. And, um, you know, there was one point last night where they were telling her that she only had time for one more question. So she was like, oh, no, like, oh, dear, and told the audience, you know, I'll take as many questions as as I can, if you guys can say them really quickly. So this was really different from the kind of, you know, very structured, very regimented, um, somewhat brief, conversations that we saw at the beginning of the campaign. Um, and I think it's very, you know, it, it's it's easy to draw a connection between what we saw out of Clinton yesterday and the fact that, um, you know, she's facing a really, really competitive race right now from Bernie Sanders and her campaign is pushing this kind of, quote unquote, more authentic, more engaging um persona in an attempt to really connect with voters and get back their edge. Mm-hmm. Well, and she's, and she'll be here today and then also tomorrow. Yep. Yeah. Um, and tomorrow is significant because it is the first time that most of the Democratic candidates will be on stage together in, well, at the same event in New Hampshire. Um, Hillary Clinton will be there. Bernie Sanders will be there. Martin O'Malley will be there. Lawrence Lessig will be there. Let me guess that Jim Webb will not. Jim Webb will not. And he actually, um, there is an important distinction here because his campaign has told me that they never indicated that he was going to be at the convention. The New Hampshire Democratic Party has been promoting this for, I think, about a month now as though all of the candidates will be there. Um, Lincoln Chafee will also be there. Um, Do we know what Jim Webb's up to? Like he's going to be in Iowa. Okay, so, so pre- it's not like yeah. he's got some amazing. You know, it's yeah. not like he's flying to Mars this weekend. Yeah. He could easily come to New Hampshire. He's just decided I mean, not to. Perhaps um, I don't know the exact location of what he's doing in Iowa, but um, you know, I I don't know if it's it's probably reasonable at this point to suggest that maybe he is putting his eggs more in 
that basket than the New Hampshire one at this point, Um, (laughs) given that he has not been here since he announced his presidential campaign. But I did think it was kind of, I I just found it kind of interesting because you had the, the state party who was like, you know, basically using this as a selling point to get people to the convention that all of the candidates would be there. But I have been checking in with the web campaign for several weeks and they keep telling me, no, we never kind of RSVP'd to them and told them that we would be there. So just kind of a funny kind of... I had noted that up until last week, even the last couple mm-hmm. days, they were still promoting web being mm-hmm. there, but not Lessig. Yeah. yeah. And and probably one of the most interesting stories that we've had that, that I thought was really interesting mm-hmm. was... Nick Reed's story on Lawrence Lessig today. Mm-hmm. So Lawrence Lessig was yesterday at New England College in Hanneker. You know, he's doing the same thing. He's doing his campaign stop. He is, you know, he's anti-money and politics candidate. He's the outsider. He's the never held political office. He is the well, bear with me, the Carly Fiorina, the Donald Trump, the Ben Carson of the Republican ticket. He is the outsider, right? And so while on the Republican side, it's the outsiders that are, that are like, gaining all the attention. But on the Democratic side, he can't even get at the card table. The polls aren't, in order to get on the debate stage, he needs to get 1% in the polls. But the national pollsters aren't even asking people what they think about him. So he's in this ultimate catch-22. I do think some of that has to do with another outside, you know, quote unquote outsider. And we've had this discussion how Bernie Sanders is not technically an outsider because he has been in politics for quite some time. But, um, you know, you have Bernie Sanders, who is kind of fulfilling the, you know, um, what is the word I'm looking for? The the uh, uh, the insurgent. Insurgent. That's the one. Yes. the insurgent candidacy. So that makes it harder for someone like Lessig to begin with, on top of the fact that he has far less significant name recognition than Bernie Sanders and also got into the race a lot later than Bernie Sanders. Well, I think there's also... Lawrence Lessig isn't a household name? I think there's also just the the basic point that the Democrats have held the presidency Mm -hmm. for like the past two terms. Mm -hmm. You know, I think Democrats in general are maybe a little more favorably disposed to say, well, here's someone who's been in power. You know, Republicans have been out of the big chair, so to speak, for a long time. And they might feel that their best chance is to go with someone who's who's not part of that. Mm -hmm. that Rubio was just in the big chair the other day. That's true. (laughs) As we discussed. Anyway, well, John... Casey, thanks so much for for talking, and we'll see what happens next week. Good chat. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can listen to past and current episodes of this podcast series on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want more political coverage from the Monitor, please visit the Political Monitor at politics.conqueredmonitor.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.